Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. We currently live in a world where the vast majority of people tell you that you can be and you can achieve exactly anything that you want, doesn't matter what it is. And it also includes, sadly, these days, which is becoming more and more prevalent, the idea that you can even change your biological sex or more specifically your gender which is simply not true. You cannot change something that was given to you at conception. You cannot change your DNA and you cannot change your bone structure. But unfortunately, there is this narrative that is being pushed primarily from a ideological woke left uh, society and it has sadly creeped into our political system as well that In fact, you can be transgender. This whole idea that you can change your biological sex because if you feel like you are a different uh, gender, let's say, then it must be true. And we have these uh, ideological people that have infected the medical system, they've infected uh, psychologists, they've put in laws now protecting this whole affirming care that you cannot say anything out against whether or not someone claims to be something that they're really not, you cannot say anything about that. Now, I know that this conversation is a little bit different to some of the conversations that you guys may be used to listening to on the Storybox. And the reason why I'm having this conversation with my guest, Helen Joyce, who is the senior staff writer or was a senior staff writer or journalist, sorry, at The Economist where she has chosen not to go back uh, after her sabbatical because her work around this idea of gender confusion and trans ideology is far more important and far more needful uh, in today's culture because what they are doing is they are 
brutalize, brutalizing and they are destroying the lives of kids. And it's all under this guise of it is okay. You can be whatever you want to be and it's totally normal and it is totally acceptable. Where is the harm? But there is a great deal of harm that is going on in our society that many of you may not be used to uh, or may not be aware of, I should say. And I want to start having more of these conversations regarding these certain issues because this is the story box. And why should one particular story be correct whereas the other story is somehow wrong? And I'm fascinated by human behavior, human ideas, and I feel like, and human stories as well. Like this is the main reason why I created the show is to help others realize their worth and reach their full potential. And sadly, the ones that believe that they are a particular, a different gender have got a confused idea of what identity really means. And this is a, this is an idea that I want to help try and change. And so this conversation with Helen Joyce, I really, really enjoyed. I, I wanted it to go on and on and on because some of the information that she is talking about is so important and it is so needful and it is based around science and a lot of research, as you will no doubt listen to during our conversation. But we, we need to get to this place where we're not confusing kids, confusing adults and making and, and also not just confusing them but also putting women in danger because men who think that they are a woman is somehow accepted but there is a lot of abuse going on regarding this as you will no doubt listen to during this conversation. So my friends, I hope that you do enjoy this conversation. I did. I found this really, really fascinating and I feel like the work that Helen is, is, uh, is doing is important and it is helpful. So it's always better to get informed and learn about the other side of people's stories that you may not hear about in the mainstream media, unfortunately, because they've got a particular agenda uh, that is going on. But I hope that you guys you do get something out of this regardless. All right, with all that being said, uh, I have teamed up with the awesome people, uh, Zach and Joel, who have created the legendary brand Slouch Potato. Uh, it is a brilliant line of clothing. I The most comfortable clothes I have worn in my entire life. I'm not kidding. They're designed as pajamas, but get this, they don't even look like they are pajamas, which I absolutely love. Worn them many, many times now on the show as well as out in public and nobody can tell the difference. So I wanted to team up with them and bring you guys a very special discount uh, and you guys can try it for yourself. So you just go to slouchpotato.com and at checkout use discount code STORYBOX. That is Storybox for 10% off of your purchase. And I know that you guys are really going to love their clothes, the comfiest clothes you're ever going to wear. And mind you, I'm not getting paid to say this. 
I just teamed up with them because I think they are awesome. All right, my friends, I know I've gone a little bit long, but that's okay. I hope that you enjoy this episode, but you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Helen Joyce. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much for your time. And your your work is really, really important. And you Thank mentioned you. just a moment ago that you were part of The Economist, but you took a sabbatical and now you're no longer uh, choosing to go back to work for them. Are you able to, because of the importance of your work, would you be able to uh, share how you came about that decision? Sure. Um, so The Economist um, has been pretty supportive of me on this topic, which is not easy for a journalistic outlet, especially a global one, because it's so toxic, especially in America, where a lot of The Economist's readers are. And, you know, you're just not meant to write and talk about these issues. I should say that nearly everything The Economist has done on this issue in the past four years has not been by me. Uh, I did write a piece in 2017 and another in 2018. But after that, because I was speaking more publicly and it was known that I was going to write a book and we have no bylines at The Economist, the articles aren't named, it was felt that I was too much on one side. So anything that you've read since then wasn't by me, basically. Um I, you know, so I was supported, but I wasn't doing the work I was most interested in. I was the finance editor and then the Britain editor, which are fantastic jobs and would have been, you know, absolutely a dream before I became so passionately interested in this one topic. And in the end, uh, with the blessing of the editor, I took a one year unpaid leave of absence to go and do campaigning work, which is completely incompatible with journalism, especially journalism with no byline. And I had to decide what to do at the end of that. If I wanted to go back, I would really have had to stop doing what I was doing. And at the beginning of the year, I thought, you know, is this is this sort of a passing madness where one year's intervention can really make a bit of a difference? Obviously, I'm not the only person doing it. But if I threw my weight behind it for a year, could I make a meaningful difference and then say, fine, I'll leave it to others? Absolutely not. It's only escalating and escalating. And just in good conscience, I didn't feel I could go back. And also I knew I wouldn't be doing a good job. I'd be thinking my heart would be elsewhere. So what I'm doing is continuing to work for Sex Matters, which is an advocacy group, uh, strapline uh, Sex Matters in law and everyday life. As I explain to people, sex doesn't matter in most places, but where it matters, it's sex that matters. And that's what we're trying to get established. And then I do various other things, including writing a newsletter on my own website, which is thehelenjoyce.com. Yeah. For context for my audience, what got you interested in this particular subject matter that you are? I mean, a random a random question by a commissioning editor. Huh. Uh, literally, somebody sat down next to me at a lunch and said, why, why do the kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans? Yeah. And I, you know, I was at the stage then that I thought and had thought most of my life in a corner of my brain, oh, there's, you know, there's a teeny tiny number of people who somehow are born in the wrong body and need surgery. And now I now think that idea makes literally no sense. I don't know how you could be born in the wrong body, but I had never given it any thought. And the idea that a child could say this and that large numbers of them were saying this just intrigued me. So I said, I don't know, I'll look into it. Yeah. And that was about 2017, as I say. Um, and I wrote an article and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought there's something funny happening here because, you know, I'd never, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in a world where women can vote and I was working in a mixed sex company and I'd never felt particularly that being a woman held me back. I have a PhD in mathematics and, you know, I did that despite being a woman. It had never really occurred to me that uh, it mattered to pay attention to what sex people were. You know, I'm one of the lucky people who hasn't suffered domestic violence. I haven't been raped. I 
you know, I don't play sport, so I don't need women's sports particularly, although my family are very sporty. And it, as soon as I started to think about it, I started to think, huh, you know, if, um, because it had moved beyond this tiny number of people who needed accommodations to being a broad redefinition of what sex was for everybody. Now the activists were saying that uh, literally you are the sex you say you are and that there is no difference between sex and gender. You know, it's not that we recognize that a trans woman is male, but that that person is in some sense a woman. By the way, that's a very sexist idea, but they weren't even saying that. So I started to think, well, what does it mean then to be gay? Like if you're gay, does that mean that you're attracted to anyone who identifies as the same sex as you? Well, that's both men and women. Yeah. You know, what about it? I'm just straight. I'm straight. You know, how can I say that I'm not attracted to a trans man because the trans man is actually a woman? Well, I'm not allowed to say that. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is breaking quite a lot of things. And then I discovered they were telling children that this was true, like really true, not metaphorical, not an accommodation for a few people, but really, really true. And that large numbers of children were believing it. And that some of those children were going on to have uh, extreme medical interventions. And I started to meet, you know, young people who had come out the other end of those medical interventions saying they were seriously damaged. And that that was the day I decided to write the book. It's absolutely barbaric what is actually happening to those kids. And the fact that it is happening and people getting away with it these days is absolutely shocking. It's heartbreaking. And that's why I'm number one grateful for your advocacy in this particular thing, because it is not an easy thing to actually talk about. The subject matter is quite hard and it is highly politicized for that fact these days as well. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you got interested in it because you found out the kids were coming home really confused about it. How long ago was that? So I started looking into it in 2017. And at the time, children were just being used as a rhetorical tool as far as I knew. So you see, the the doctors who worked in this field uh, for decades, they talked really only about adults, but they, they, they thought of themselves as doing something medical. Now, I now think the medical thing they're doing was a major human rights abuse, but I didn't know that at the time. And they thought of themselves as helping a small number of people who had a severe mental health condition or desperately unhappy to live happier lives. But those people didn't conceive of it that way in large numbers. A lot of them conceived of it as being that they had a real, really had a woman inside or had a man inside, that they were genuinely, in some psychic sense, members of the opposite sex and always had been. And as soon as you say and always had been, you have to, you have trans kid children. Yeah. But actually the evidence, separate evidence, is that children form their gender identities in a mixture of ways that's to do with the culture that they're in, the society they're in, the messages that they're told about stereotypes, whether they're gay or straight. So, I mean, it seems weird to talk about a child being gay or straight, but they're kind of proto-gay or proto-straight. There's kids that are two are going to be gay when they grow up. And we know that. And the same with straight. And those kids are much more likely to be quite gender non-conforming and to think, why am I weird? Why am I different from other people? Oh, maybe I'm a girl. Oh, maybe I'm a boy. If their society is homophobic and gives them that message. So doctors knew that with one part of their brain and with another part of the brain. They were doing these operations on adults, but the adults wanted the children to be understood as proto-trans people, not as children who would mostly resolve their gender confusion when they grow up. Yeah. 
And once you say there are trans children, then you start to think, well, we must stop them from going through the wrong puberty. We must help them as early as we can. We must socially transition them. And that's where the activists were already in 2017. But it wasn't being talked about that much. There were a couple of articles, I think, in 2018 by two American journalists, Jesse Singal and Katie Herzog. And they were the first place I saw in any mainstream. They were in the Atlantic and in the Seattle Stranger. Um, and they, of course, they changed both of those journalists' careers entirely. They both got attacked and, you know, dropped from every publication they'd ever written from. But that was the first time I saw, oh, they're putting children on a medical pathway in the name of these adults who have this idea about their identities. And some of those kids come back and say, this is a terrible idea. And then I met some of those kids in, I think it was 2019, young people who would come out the other end of it. And the group that I met consisted entirely of young lesbians. Now, there's people who are not lesbians who, who go through all of this too, straight people, boys as well. But that particular group was a half a dozen lesbians. And in the most extreme cases, they had been sterilized. They had had their sex organs removed, one of them at the age of 21. So she had had her mastectomy at 18 or 19. And then at 21, she had had her ovaries and his, her, her womb removed. And they had taken testosterone. So, you know, they had um, very obvious physical changes, changes to their voice and so on. And at 23, this girl had realized, I'm just a lesbian. This is all, this was all in search of something completely mad. It was like she had gone through a sort of a, you know, a four year weird cycle that had been driven really by her anorexia. Mm. And then doctors had confirmed or affirmed to her that if you feel like this, you probably are trans. And now she, there she was at 23 with irrevocable changes to her body that she thought were, you know, both insane, like, you know, insane medical practice and that she was going to have to live with for the rest of her life. So I was really, I was really um, overwhelmed by that because I hadn't formulated the expression, the sentence in my mind until that day. But that night I kept saying to myself, they're sterilizing gay kids because that's what they're doing. They're sterilizing some other kids too, but it is disproportionately gay kids who are caught up in this. And, you know, if you say they're sterilizing gay kids, you think you're back at, you know, infecting black men with syphilis and leaving them to, to suffer to see how it plays out. You know, you're at that level of beyond medical malpractice. You're into severe human rights abuse. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. So pretty much it's more... It's more than just a mental health issue. It's like psychologists are confusing a mental health issue or just they're affirming a mental health issue or it's not actually a mental health issue to begin with. I think they're actually creating a mental health issue in large yeah. part. So, so we didn't have very large numbers of children who thought they were meant to be members of the opposite sex until no. recently. This just didn't arise so an analogy we would be with eating disorders, there isn't a set amount of eating disorders in a country. Yeah. There are places where it's extremely unusual to starve yourself and really almost unknown to starve yourself because you think you're fat. That's an idea that's put out in the culture. It's called, in, in the techni technical sense, it's called the symptom pool. Yeah. We all of us have an idea of what symptoms are available to us to express our distress and what those symptoms mean. So you go to your doctor with you know, general disease, uncomfortable, miserable, pain in your stomach, can't sleep, whatever. And you'll come out with a diagnosis that varies from place to place, depending on how your culture thinks about those symptoms. Yeah. So we now, over the past 20 years, have unfortunately released into the symptom pool the idea that if you feel your body is wrong, puberty is desperately distressing for you, 
you ardently wish that you didn't have the changes that you're going through in puberty. And honestly, nobody finds them easy. Um, you know, a bunch of other things that probably are trends. Yeah. And that idea didn't exist 20 years ago, really, not in the general public. Yeah. So actually, I think we're creating, and I think it's probably better to say mental distress than mental illness. We're creating the mental distress by feeding that line to children, and then we're diagnosing them, and then we're treating them. Yeah. So I think when you say what treatment you should give to children who suffer gender dysphoria, which is the formal expression for being very unhappy with your sexed body, uh, that's too late. We shouldn't be making them gender dysphoric in this first place. Yeah. You know, children who used to be anxious or have eating disorders or cut all of which have gone up hugely as well. Like there's a general mental health crisis among younger people. Those kids are to a quite significant extent now thinking they must be gender dysphoric. And then once you start to think about it, you start to ruminate and you, you know, you really focus on the aspects of your body you don't like. And you think that everything would be better if you were the other sex. You think the grass is greener on the other side. Boys think like girls have it easy. Girls think if I was a boy, boy, you know, I wouldn't be the object of this sort of grotesque porn that there is on the internet now. And, you know, both of those things might be true or not, but anyway, you can't be a member of the other sex. So just, you know, we shouldn't be telling anybody that. Yeah. yeah, So that's the other part of the whole puzzle is that schools are now routinely telling children, uh, really telling them in terms that what makes you a boy or a girl is your uh, identification with masculine and feminine stereotypes. And really, lots of people don't identify with the stereotypes for their sex. I mean, nobody identifies with them entirely. Nobody's Barbie. Nobody's G.I. Joe. And then those children think, huh, oh, well, then I must be non-binary or a boy or a girl. And you've started this rumination cycle for those kids. Yeah. So we're feeding it online. We're feeding it through the medical profession. And we're feeding it most of all, I think, through schools. Yeah. Major problem with the education system, this whole rhetoric and ideology that is based around solely in confusion. Like a kid doesn't know half the things they want to do. They change their mind just like that. And and we're making them make this huge life-changing decision all on their own. And parents go along with it as well because they've got, some of them have got no choice because if they go against it, they can be arrested now. It's like the political side of things is just going absolutely, it's horrendous. And then, Doctors as well. Some doctors, they I know, don't want to affirm this, but they've got no other choice. So it's, I think it's worse than that. It's it's suggest selling. We're actually suggest selling this to the kids. Yeah, you know, so everything you say is true, but it, you know, we start it as well. It's not like it's there and then we deal with it very badly. We create it and then deal with it very badly. Where did it start from, though? Oh God, that's a big question that took me chapters and chapters of the book to to tease out. And I'm not sure I got all of it and a lot of research and a lot of reading of transgender you know, autobiographies and about the doctors and getting out of print books and things. I mean, my best explanation is there has always been a really, really tiny number. I mean, homeopathically tiny number of people who think to themselves spontaneously, yeah. I was meant to be the other sex. And where you are in the world and what time it is, as in what you know, historical time, that's what affects what you do with that information. And if you're in Samoa and you're a gay man, what we would call a gay man, um, and you grew up very effeminate, you're likely to become what they say call a fafafine, which is a third category. They don't think that you become a woman. They think that you become not a man. It, it means in the manner of a woman. And you can wear women's clothes and you can sleep with men without that being taboo, but you're not a woman. And we don't have that category. So nobody becomes a fafafina here. Yeah. Um, but these, this tiny, tiny number of people, um, 
I think they, you know, over a sort of nearly a century, they and their doctors, step by step, moved from committing what I would regard as serious human rights abuses, you know, removing people's genitals, trying experimental treatments like, um, you know, inserting ovaries into men's bodies and seeing what happened and so on. But they moved from thinking, you know, there might be a few hundred men and a few hundred women in a large country who want this done to, to, to seeking those people to get legal recognition in their new sex. Now, nobody can actually change sex. But in a culture, say, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, when it was really not done to dress as a member of the opposite sex and you couldn't marry a person of the same sex and so on, if you had a man who had had his genitals reshaped to look like a woman's as best you could and who had taken testosterone, uh, taken estrogen and had grown breasts and wore his hair long and wore a dress and lipstick and high heels and so on, this man was super countercultural. Yeah. And so the decision was to let this man get legally recognised as a woman. And that was kind of the start of it. So that, you know, you couldn't change your birth cert in Britain until 2004, but you could change your passport and your driving license and your bank records if you had gone through this surgery and your doctor supported you back in the 1970s. So surgery was a, travel. Sorry, surgery was available all the way back then in the 70s. So the first surgeries were in the are about around 1930 and they were carried out in um, Germany. And highly unsuccessful. If you've seen the film The Danish Girl um, in 2015 with Eddie Redmayne, uh, oh. that was Lily Elba. Is the, it's a man called Einar Wegner who believed that he had a woman inside and this woman was called Lily Elba and he had his genitals removed and they did these bizarre surgeries where they um, transplanted ovaries from young women because at the time they were taking ovaries out of women for thinking that that's what, that would cure hysteria. I mean, in some ways, none of this is surprising. The medical profession just does some horrendous things. Like it's like every 20 years, they get a new horrific idea like lobotomies. This is our current one. Yeah. This, this idea is absolutely the current lobotomies. Uh, so they did that. And then, of course, um, the Nazis ended that line of experimentation. I mean, not because they thought it was a bad thing. I just mean that Germany fell apart. Yeah. And one of the people who had been quite instrumental in that actually moved, uh, a German man moved to America, Harry Benjamin. And then he picked it up in America and it kind of, by the 19, by 1970 or so, there were more people doing these things. And then a chap in Monaco um, really got a better version of the operation where they turn men's genitals into looking like women's genitals. And people started coming to him. So anyone who has heard of Jan Morris, the journalist James Morris, who was the first um, journalist to break the news of the ascent of, um, of um, Everest, he went out to Monaco in the 1970s, possibly 1980 or so, and came back um, as Jan. And then, you know, it, on and on it went. And and now we are saying that these are good surgeries and that they're, you know, they're perfected and they really work. And, you know, it's only afterwards that you really find out that this is not a very functional thing they've done to you. We, we are not anywhere near the level of medicine where we can turn male genitals into female ones or female ones into male ones. Nothing like. Just... It just astounds me. It really does to think that we've gotten this far. Like, and people specifically on, on the left, the radical left are pushing it so much. So it's like, but what's, what's the whole point of it though? Like, that's what I'm trying to understand and wrap my head around. Like why, if you know that you're mutilating these kids, which is what it is, their kids, you can't let them make adult decisions. They're not capable of that just yet. What is the whole point of, of yeah. everything? 
I mean, I'd start by saying the decision, you know, I'd become more and more uncomfortable with the idea that it's even a decision an adult can make. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's a strong aspect of bodily autonomy that's extremely important. So I'm not saying you definitely can't make it. I'm saying that, you know, we have no evidence base to say that this is definitely a good treatment for a well-selected group of people among adults. Like, you know, regret after surgery is a thing and they aren't collecting good data on it and clinics do not stay in touch with their patients and they do not do long-term follow-ups and so on. So already I don't know that many of the adults who are doing this are really giving informed consent. I don't think they have the evidence. And anyone who attempts to say what happens to men's bodies long-term on estrogen or women's bodies long-term on testosterone, that research doesn't get done. So there's sort of, you know, you've already got over the hump of doing something to adults that is quite experimental and just like really is it the best option and i think that's the first the first important hurdle you've overcome when you think of doing it to children because if you're already not talking in that standard medical way about what are the treatment options what are the costs and benefits what are the long term follow up results then you haven't got that information when it comes to children you're already lying and saying this is great yeah and then the second thing i think like it's so many strands have come together in this but The left has moved to a radical individualism that would have looked very foreign to even the far left, say, a half a century ago. So the history of the left has been quite communitarian. People thinking about joining unions and, you know, liberating all women or liberating all black people or something like that. But it's 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 flipped like 180 degrees to being quite obsessed with personal characteristics And of course, those personal characteristics can be group characteristics, but we're not thinking of them in terms of the group. We're thinking of them in terms of the individual. And once you turn back in on the individual and say, this person is a cis, het, white male, or, you know, that person is BIPOC or whatever, you start to think of everything as being about personal experiences of moving in a world where personal characteristics make you see in different ways. But strangely, sex is being treated differently from all the others. I mean, I could rant for about 15 minutes on the academic side of this, but let's not, let's not go there. I would just say that the same people who are absolutely adamant that a white person could never, ever identify as black simultaneously believe, and they would say that because a white person is privileged and cannot give up their need to perform, you know, penance for their white privilege. That same person will say that a man can identify as a woman. And, you know, academics have got a, a lot to um, a lot to answer for here because they, they, there is a, a sort of a backing in queer theory as to why this should be. I think I think the thinking is that it's liberatory to get rid of categories. So if you look and you say, you know, women are still oppressed and they are even in yeah. the West to some extent. And of course, certainly when you look globally and then you think, well, they're oppressed because they're women. Also true. That's why women have to wear headscarves, why they can't go to university, why they're treated the way they are in, say, Afghanistan. And then you somehow think, so if we stopped calling them women and paying attention to who's a man and who's a woman, they would be free. Yeah. And I think that final step is the extraordinarily stupid step because they'll still be oppressed on the basis of their sex because everyone can still see who's which sex, but you're now not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. So there's a bunch of these half-assed, poorly thought through, internally incoherent lines of reasoning that have landed a lot of young people at the point that they think that it is progressive 
to say that men can be women or that there is a, that sex is a spectrum or that and this is amazing that your performance of stereotypes makes you a man or a woman which to me is the most regressive thing you could ever say but for whatever reason all these people have landed at this point of thinking that this is good and progressive and we now have to say well you know there's also a new intolerance abroad in which if you talk about things that you're not meant to talk about you are a bad person yeah. And I think the reason for that is something that some people call the postmodern turn, which is the observation sort of 60s and 70s, that words don't just create reality, they define they define it. They, sorry, words don't just describe reality, they create it. And that's true. Yeah. It isn't that there's a world out there that we just get words for and we describe it and nothing changes. Our words, to some extent, do change reality and they do shape our perception of reality. Yeah. But they don't do it entirely. And this idea, they drank their Kool-Aid and they got to the point that the words are the only thing. So if you believe that, then stopping people from saying bad things in itself fixes the world. So if you want it to be that men and women are the same and everyone can be whatever they want and everyone can identify how they want and sex is a spectrum and someone like me says, uh, 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 evolution, two sexes, can't change sex, silencing me is activism. Yeah. It's a good thing to do because you're stopping my words, getting out into the world and breaking the thing that you're trying to fix. That yeah. is not my model of how the world works, but it is theirs. Well, so much for progression. If all you want to do is stop someone that disagrees with you, because that's not progression, that's regression. <laughs> but most young people think it's progressive. Like yeah. when you the surveys on campus now, um, you know, is it progressive to boo down a speaker whose ideas you agree with, you disagree with, I mean, uh, most young people will say, yes, that's progressive. Yeah, I was in university not that long ago and we we're in a critical thinking lecture, 700 kids. Now, when I say critical thinking, I'm being quite liberal and fair because it wasn't critical thinking. They were teaching us what to think and not how to think. And the lecturer was an absolute, uh, I don't know, I don't know what I should call him to be. <laughs> to be Ideologue? Very, yeah, very much an ideologue. Um, and he would ask these questions to stir people up. But we would have people come in before the lecture spinning all these Marxist material and saying, you've got to join this, you've got to join that. And I'm like, hang on a minute, this is, a, this is dangerous. This is university. You're spinning Marxist material and then you're going on to ask these questions about gender identity, then also a big one that we're debating. I wasn't actually in the room for the debate. I was watching it online. It was the vaccines. And when you had two people out of the group of 700 that went against, the amount of pillaring that the 700 did to those two people just because they didn't just didn't agree with the, the main rhetoric was unbelievable. And it's the same thing when you're discussing the trans ideology. You've got this small minority which is growing to a, a wider majority of people that just want to be all inclusive and not offend because God forbid we offend somebody that has this idea in their head that there's something that they're really not. Oh my goodness. The, the amount of chaos that comes as a result of that, it's just, mm. that's, that's another issue. We're, we're walking on these eggshells created by these ideologues thinking that they're doing something that is progressive and right, which is, it's totally backwards, is wrong. 
So that's I think what some I'm, of them are enjoying the power, you know, like some of them don't know perfectly well they're not being progressive, but they very much enjoy shouting people down. Yeah. And, you know, to, it is fun. I'm sure I'm, you see it. You see people at protests, you know, and in particular, they love shouting middle aged women down. Yep. I'm saying so, that. Yeah. And I, I mean, we have to acknowledge that it is more young women than young men who are absolutely crazily involved in gender identity stuff. But it's the young men who send the date, rape threats and the young men who you know physically intimidate women. And they're the it's the young men overwhelmingly who have worried me most. Um, I, I, I think it's never been very easy to speak against a dominant narrative. And we should say that, of course, you know, in your classroom of 700, it may have been the majority view that men could be women, et cetera, et cetera. It's not out in the real world at all. So the concept of pluralistic ignorance is an important one here. So this is the idea that um, if you have, in some sort of sense, authoritarian uh, information control, so you think about um, during the Soviet era, you know, everything was wonderful. Tractor production was up every year, et cetera, et cetera. And you know that you will suffer if you say anything about that. Then you have no idea who else agrees with you, who else is a silent dissident. And I think we're very much in that state with gender identity. Whenever there are polls done, anonymous, proper, properly conducted polls that ask clear questions, you find people saying that they have a lot of sympathy with people of gender dysphoria. They want them to be sort- supported. They do not think that male-bodied people, however you put it, I would say men, they would say women with penises or something, can come into women's spaces. People do not think this by and large. Uh, But if you're in a university or a publishing house or you work in mainstream journalism or you're in a big, um, you know, corporation, uh, local government, uh, think tanks, all of these things that are very much infected with American ideas, because this is an American idea that's been exported, then you can't say that. So you don't know who else thinks it. So I get loads of emails all the time from people saying, I can't say a word at work. The toilets have gone gender neutral. We all have to have our pronouns and our email signature. Uh, You know, there's a bloke who calls himself a woman now and he makes everybody very uncomfortable and he started coming to the menopause support group. I mean, I literally hear things like this. Um, But I can't say a word because if I say a word, I would, you know, I work in the arts or... I'm in a media company and it will be so, you know, it'll be social death and then it will be work death. So the control is done via people's um, employment. It's done by their means of making a living. Uh, If you are known to be gender critical, as people call people like me, strange expression, I call it sex realist. If you're known to be a sex realist, then it can be very, very, very hard to get employment. So people just say nothing. So these ideologues can just run rampant through everywhere because nobody's challenging them. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's sad to think that some people, they don't necessarily agree with what's going on, yet they're kind of stuck because financially they can't really go anywhere else. Otherwise, it's just going to be absolutely the they go from one to the next. And and you, like you said, it's very much an American idea that has spread to the West. It's, it's creeping in uh, largely here in Australia as well, and it's getting... Yeah, it's in schools now, public schools, and where the the political system. I I personally don't think this should should ever have been a political issue. It's a society issue as a whole, and I don't think it should be an issue at all, or furthered uh, and, and made into one. Um, but that's just my whole understanding. But it is just schools now. You're seeing kids, the mental health is on the rise as a result because they're confused even more. They can't go to their parents. They all they feel afraid to go to their parents. They go to their peers or they go to their phones 
And it's just it's horrendous. And and no one, no one here that I know is really doing much about it because they're too afraid to actually say anything. I mean, I've written It was probably it's it's yeah, it's probably like it was here five years ago. Yeah. So if you're you know, you're starting by talking and writing about this, you are starting. It's a snowball thing, you know, it's small and it feels like you're getting nowhere. But then somebody else will reach out to you and then somebody else will say something and so on. And, you know, you you do, you do build up momentum, I promise. The reason why I want to talk about this is because I first came about it when I started hearing uh, about the trans athletes. So men competing in women's sports. And I thought, hang on a minute, that is totally backwards and wrong. Why are we accepting this to be the case? Like, why are we moving forward with this? And then it just started just exploding more and more. The more I did research on it, the more I started to realize it goes beyond just males competing in in female sports. Then you had companies putting out the pronouns, which I thought was just absolutely ridiculous as well. And whenever I see it, I'm just like, oh my goodness, here we go again. But then I started seeing it in the education system. Then I started seeing uh, stories of kids Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kids being told by their mums and also being told by their teachers that you are allowed to be whatever you want to believe or you think you are, you can be. So go and do that and we're going to affirm you and we're not going to stop you at all. So that's when I started. It was like, well, hang on a minute. I have a voice. I have a platform. I'm going to try and get as educated as I possibly can because that's the wise thing to do. I don't know everything on the topic. That's why I'm learning from people like you, Helen. And I also, why should these people have more of a voice and I not? I don't care if I get the backlash. I'm sort of ready for it now because I, I don't want to be silent when so many are suffering. That makes sense. Like I want to. Absolutely. I felt the same. And I know that you've faced incredible backlash, but I mean, have I? You know, I, I can't let that fly by, really. Um, I, there's something about these these people who... So, so you have to understand all of this as kind of a distributed version of, of China's social control system. So in China, you know, if you step out of line on something like getting vaccinated or you're in some way undesirable, you won't be able to use the train, you won't be able to work, you won't be able to leave your apartment, whatever. They just, they control you via those means. This is social control, but it's policed in a distributed manner. 
individual workers, individual colleagues, individual bosses, people online. And if they can't get to you, they tend to leave you alone and focus on somebody that they can. So, for example, there's a large number of people who are social workers, and there's precisely about two in this country who have spoken out about all of this. And yet these are the people who are helping to take children away from parents. You know, they're the people, the children in care, in the state's care, whether that's in foster homes or children's homes, are way overrepresented in the children seen by gender clinics. Yeah. So we know that there are social, there must be social workers who are very worried about this. It's not possible that the entire profession is captured and only two people care. But the thing is that social workers can say not a word about this without facing disciplinary action. Yeah. And I, I've, there is a woman here, Rachel Mead, a social worker, who is taking a legal case because she was censured by her um, her professional body for just saying very, very mild things about this. So, so that, that's to, almost total silence. That's at the level beyond Chinese levels of silencing. And I mean, you know, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's in, North Korea now, West, actually, yeah. this level of silencing. Literally, there are more yeah. dissidents in North Korea than there are in British social work. But then there are other places, um, I would say, the new media is an obvious example. Like, I wonder what people would think they could do to you, actually. You know, you don't work at uh, a left-wing newspaper where they can just get you fired. No. Uh, but so, so there's people who can just say what they want. And then if, if you're one of those people, only every now and then will they come after you. You'll say something that can be misinterpreted or something like that. And then they're you're really vicious on that. If it doesn't get people to cancel you and you don't apologize, very important not to apologize, they leave you alone. Yeah. But unfortunately, the people they can get at are the people in the regulated professions more than anything else. And that's doctors, social workers, teachers, um, you know, those and those are the three most important professions in terms of protecting children. So they've got to the child protection mechanism almost totally. The child protection mechanism is harming children on this issue. Why should you? Well, the question is, why should you even apologize to them for offending them, really? Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes you might have said something that genuinely you would have preferred to say better. Yeah, and it would be better to be in a world where you could say, oh, yeah, that didn't land right, did it? What I meant was this. But if you do, they smell blood in the water. Yeah. And they will never, ever, ever leave you alone. And in so many ways, this is creating a more toxic environment for all of us, especially online, because a world in which you can speak freely. And, you know, if you say something that's gone a bit too far or that landed wrong or you made a mistake because there was something you didn't know, you could say, oh, right, I see what you mean. That's not what I meant. I didn't know that. Thanks. And then continue. That's a much, much better political and social culture than the one where I'm telling you, don't apologize. Because if you do, it will follow you everywhere and they will never leave you alone. Yeah. So we're in this weird state where there are people who can speak quite freely. I mean, I was, of course, in the mainstream media. And I mean, this this is not a criticism of The Economist at all. Like when you're working in a, an organisation, especially one with no bylines, you don't have freedom to speak publicly because you're employed and you're part of your, your organisation. And they've written lots of good stuff and most of it not by me because I didn't write about this issue after 2018. Other people did at The Economist. Um, yeah, so, so those people, you know, can't speak. But over here, there's plenty of people who can speak. And I think it's important that those who can speak do. Among the people who can't speak are most parents. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to talk about the dynamics between parents, the medical profession, schools and their children. Complex. So, um, yeah, I mean, if your child says to you, you know, 
congratulations, mum, you thought you had a boy, actually you've got a girl. Like the first thing that parents will do is they will look online and then the first thing they will find is activist lies telling them their child will kill themselves if they don't agree. Yeah. And that, 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 you know, trans children will commit suicide unless you affirm is such a horrific lie and it's such a dangerous and wicked one because parents will obviously do anything rather than risk that their child kills themselves. It's every parent's worst nightmare. They go into There is no evidence that that's the case. Yeah. So then those parents affirm, possibly very unhappily, um, I mean, I loads of parents who have children who have trans, who've declared transgender identities and the parents are distraught about it, but they don't know what to do about it. And what they need is professional help. So the next thing they do is they go to their doctor or they talk to the school. And unfortunately, those people are on the wrong side. What they need is a doctor or a teacher to say, oh, you know what, this is becoming much more common. Honestly, most people grow out of it. What we can do is we can accommodate your child so they don't feel too miserable in the meantime. You know, we run a very gender neutral school to the extent we can. Your boy can do knitting if he wants. Your girl can do woodworking if she wants. Uh, you know, we'll talk about names and so on. And we'll just we'll just all work through this together. But they don't do that. No. They tell you that, OK, that now you've got a boy yeah. or a girl or a non-binary child or whatever. And I have seen so many letters from schools to parents, like telling them that they'll call social services if they don't go along with this. And I know people who have had social services called on them. And I know people who've been put through full investigations and had to face the possibility that all of their children will be taken away simply because they didn't want their severely depressed, autistic 15-year-old daughter suddenly saying she was a boy to be put on testosterone as soon as she hit 16. Yeah. So, I mean, it it has corrupted the whole surrounding of everything that we do societally with children. And I don't think you can say in that situation how many people agree with it or disagree with it, because the consequences of disagreeing are so severe for parents and for professionals. It's almost like you've, you've trapped the parents because they don't know necessarily what to do. The lies and the information that is put online is damning usually and it makes the parents fear even more for their child's safety so they go into overprotection mode and then it just makes things 10 times worse and unfortunately even if they don't you know even if they don't go into that mode what can they do like I know parents who are in self in, in support groups with each other, but they don't even tell their children that they're in any such group because that's the other thing is the children are given these scripts by the activists online, like how to come out to your parents, the 10 things your parents are likely to say to you and the things you can say back. And the children are really taught to threaten their parents and they're really you know, to say, clever, I will kill is- myself. I will leave you. I will never talk to you again. So again and again, people who should know better have said terrible things to me um, or about me. And um, when I look into it, it's their child, an adult, often a daughter in their 20s has said, you know, if you go along with this, I am never speaking to you again. And that is seen as activism. That is a good thing. You're a moral person. If you say to your mother, you know, unless you say that you believe in gender identity and that trans women are women, I'm not coming home again. And they even put on the script, if your parent doesn't affirm this, who to call, who to go to, to get the support that you need, and you'll feel safe because your mum isn't making you feel safe here. Therefore, it's dangerous for you to be at home and we'll protect you. But 
And we know from child abuse scandals that that's the way that child abuse creeps in. I am absolutely not saying that this is what drove it. Some people have this conspiracy theory that paedophiles are behind the whole thing, and I don't think that at all. What I'm saying is that we know from child abuse scandals in the past that push driving a wedge between children and their parents or telling children that you'll keep secrets from them or confusing children about their bodies and their boundaries. These are all things that make it much easier for child abuse to happen. Uh So none of this should be happening. And every teacher in Britain anyway goes to um, child safeguarding training. And they are told in this training, keep the parents with you. The only time you would ever keep a secret from parents is when you think they're the ones who are causing the abuse. And there's a documented process you've got to go through if you want to keep parents in the dark. And yet, you know, the schools are just a stone's throw from where I'm sitting here who have it as standard procedure that if a child says to them, I'm really a boy, I'm really a girl, I'm really non-binary, they go, fine, what name do you want? What pronouns? Change the school records. And then they use the old name and pronouns when talking to the parents to specifically conceal it from the parents. I know people who found out by accident 18 months later that their child has been, and, and, and then they realize they're the only people in the world who are talking about their girl as a girl. Everybody else is talking about their girl as a boy. And this has been happening behind their backs. This is madness, in case it's not clear. It's complete insanity. I'm totally with you on that. So what does a parent, in in your understanding, what is the best sort of approach if a child was to come out to them? I think you already mentioned what to do, but if a parent doesn't feel like they have a choice, instead of going to the internet and researching all these lies, what is the sort of the best case scenario for them to to do? Well, I think you need to get support for yourself as a parent. You need um, you need to recognise this is a serious mental health issue for you. You're in a crisis. This is like you know a horrific divorce or such. Like it's at that level of seriousness for you. So you need to get support because if you break down, everything goes wrong. And then. Um, drop any other arguments you're having with your kid. You know, if you're in a big fight about something else, about subjects at school or results or whatever, put those aside. And there's nothing that's guaranteed to work, I should say. I know plenty of excellent parents who have done everything that they can think of and this has not worked and their child is now headed towards surgery or estranged. So I'm sorry, this is the worst thing that is happening really in family relations at the moment. And it's not you, it's, it's the culture. Yeah. You know, forgive yourself. You did not do this. You did not cause this. What I've seen work um, in families that are already quite strong and have good lines of communication open is, you know, double down on that communication is everything thing. Don't tell your child they're stupid. Don't even suggest that. Don't say this is ridiculous. Don't say, you know, anything like nonsense. Um And to start to sow the seeds of doubt about the things the child is seeing and reading online. So someone I know who did get told by their school that their daughter now identified as a boy, um, their school refused to talk about it any further. They just said, oh, you're 13 year old boy. Congratulations. Um, They had a great family relationship, very happy. You know, the other children were great, happy marriage and so on. And they managed to talk to the girl and say to her, because she was binding her breasts, and which is very dangerous, by the way that they were worried about that specific issue and they had found research suggesting that binding was dangerous. And because they had a good relationship with their daughter, they were able to show her that evidence. And the girl looked at that and then she looked at the things she'd seen in the activist material that say that it's safe. And she was distraught because she she now realised that she was harming her long-term health. 
And she was saying to her mum, you know, how can this be? Like these these organisations are saying it's fine and they're listed, you know, they're talked about in school. They come and visit schools. They're listed, listed on the government's website for children and so on. And they're lying to me. And that was the turning point for them because the, the mother had managed to drive a, you know, a crack into the child's blanket sort of understanding that the activists were right and her parents were evil. And now she understood her parents were on her side. So anything you can do to make the child understand that you are on their side, that's the most important thing, that what you care about more than anything else is their well-being. And there's a general principle of changing people's minds, which is that you don't lecture them. You don't try to tell them everything at one go. People don't change their minds because other people have given them information. They change their minds themselves. They may use the information that you give them, but it will have to go on in their own heads. So I would say as little as possible, affirm the child, say, you know, I'm really not comfortable using your new pronouns, but maybe we could talk about a name. Yeah. Uh, you know, how can I make you comfortable without making myself feel like I'm giving up my most important um, understandings of the world and come to a, and come to negotiation and listen, say, you know, could I show you something to read if you show me something to read? You know, go for walks, try and try and talk about something other than gender. Like if you've got a good relationship with your child about sport or nature or art or the theatre or something, build that up. Try to squash gender down into its box and don't let it take over everything. Yeah. All of this is very hard. It's some general good principles. And then when you do say something, practice it beforehand and make it like just kind of one thing and then move on. So you might say something like, um, you know, I'm just a bit worried about the number of detransitioners I'm seeing now. Like it doesn't seem that everybody knows what they're doing when they're a kid and some of them get unhappy, but you know, like maybe I need to look into it more and then move on. No lecturing. And this is, this is not easy because at the same time, the entire culture is doing the opposite to you, but this is my best advice. So I don't have any magic bullet on this. Yeah. I know it is extremely complex and I appreciate you sharing the things that you did because you've got a confused child that doesn't really necessarily know they're 100% confused. They've got a war raging on inside and because the ideology has been attached to the whole identity side of things when gender is in fact not actually an identity at all uh it just complicates matters even worse for the poor parent trying not to confuse the child even more because yeah like i i i totally get it so any any sort of helpful information i guess is anything is <laughs> better than nothing I guess. So, yeah, I know it's. I mean, we need to change the culture is the answer. Like it's like saying, to, you know, that we're going to bombard teenage girls with images of skinny women and let, you know, these pro anorexia websites flourish unchallenged and so on, and then leave it to individual parents to stop their children from starving themselves to death. We need to stop schools from telling children lies. We need to, you know, really fight back against the political moves to enforce pronouns and so on. So, the, I mean, I think, Ideally, parents who, there's one of these other catch-22s is parents, most parents who aren't caught up in this don't even know it's happening or they think it's been blown out of proportion. And of course, everyone's busy. So they're not doing anything about it. But once a parent is caught up in it, they can't do anything about it either. Because if they do, they they disturb the very fragile relationship with the child and they antagonize them and they maybe cause problems with the school and they bring down the wrath of social services or whatever. So that's, you know, parents are in an incredibly difficult position and this only shifts if parents who are able to speak and that's the ones whose kids are fine, speak more. Yeah. 
And so what I say to parents is this is affecting all children. You think it's only affecting the children who are gender confused, but it's affecting them all. Because when schools go gender neutral in the toilets, all girls suffer. Religious girls suffer. Girls who are victims of abuse or, you know, who are you know, suffering anxiety or whatever suffer, but all girls suffer. When boys are allowed into women's sports, all girls suffer. All children, boys and girls suffer when we tell them lies about their bodies. So if parents whose children are fine can register that this ideology is something that is all part and parcel of the same thing, this phenomenon of children identifying as trans, this phenomenon of destroying sex-based rights, and this phenomenon of teaching lies in the classroom, these things are linked And the destroying the school facilities and the lying in the classroom are things that affect all children. So you can hopefully get parents to start talking about that when their own children are fine. And they will then, over time, help reduce the number of very badly affected children, the ones who identify as trans. Do you think, here's just me thinking out loud here, do you think that if, so we had a majority of parents all coming together, all banding together, and obviously complaining and making statements, even though some of their kids may say that they're trans and and all that sort of stuff. Do you think the police could pretty much take away all of the parents' kids if everyone just spoke up in unison? No, this is a complex political uh, situation where there were lots of moving parts. You know, there are virtue signaling politicians, there are captured civil servants, there are professions that have already fallen to ideologues who have written professional standards codes. And there are parents and there are children and all these moving parts, you have to think about them together. And one of them moving doesn't necessarily change anything. So, I mean, there are many things on which the political class does not think the same as the population at large. Now, sometimes that's because the population at large wants, you know, a money magic money tree. There are just things you can't do. You know, the world can't work in certain ways. You can't have, you know, full employment, low inflation and big pay rises every year. Those things are not compatible. But people like them and want them. So I'm not saying that, you know, because politicians disagree with the populace, they're necessarily wrong. On this one, I think they are. And politicians over time do respond to public opinion. It just can be slow and it can be distracted by infighting in their own party. So most politicians know very well this isn't popular by now, here in England anyway. But they also know they may not get selected for their seat for the next election if they say that. And the first person to speak would be a big target. So Rosie Duffield, who's a Labour MP here, who's been very brave on all of this. I mean, she gets the most horrific abuse, like really misogynistic threats. And Joanna Cherry, who's a Scottish politician who does, is actually going to court at the moment because there's a man who's sending her rape and death threats. And I think he's within her own party. So people don't want to be one of the first, but every now and then a brave person is, and then it gets easier. Well, what what helps politicians most is when they know that voters are with them. So you can be helpful by writing to your local representative, whoever that is. I would say everywhere that you can, that you can talk to authority and tell them that this is unpopular, that you're not standing for it, and that it will affect your vote. It will affect your behaviour. If you're a parent, you're going to stand for the school board, you know, uh, they can't kick your child out because you say you want to stand for the school board and fight against this. You know, and a, a politician cannot do anything to you if you write to them and say, my vote will depend on this and I am talking to other people. So those things help, but they're not quick. But we have to change the top. And, you know, the only thing that ordinary people can do is use their voices and use them in a canny way. And I would say seek institutions to influence. So get yourself on the board of a local hospital. 
get yourself on the governor's board for a school. Talk to other parents. If you're going to go and talk to a school, make a little group of parents to do it. It's harder for them to make your child feel bad if you do that. Get a group of parents who include men and women, not all white, not all religious or atheist. Get a mixture so that it's harder for them to say, oh, this is just, you know, middle class white women you know, yammering on or, well, this is just Muslims and they're homophobic as well, or whatever the hell they want to say to dismiss you. But so I don't think it's a question of all of us standing up and having to, you know, do civil disobedience. I think it's a matter of engaging with our elected representatives and institutions to get them to understand that they have cover to fight the ideologues inside their own ranks, that if they do it, it will be popular using smarter rhetoric to beat the stupid rhetoric <laughs> that somehow yes. is, is uh, mainstream. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the level of stupidity is the, is the thing that bothers me most about all of this. Like, in one way, of course, it's not stupid. It's diabolically clever. Yeah. Like, I would never but, have believed yeah. 20 years ago that anyone could possibly sell the maddest idea I have come across in my entire life so successfully, but my God, like marketing geniuses, like it's going to be looked back on as, as the marketing scam of the, of the millennium, basically. Um, but yes, the actual words that they're saying are beyond stupid. If we don't destroy society along the way, uh, then yes, we will look back and think what the actual hell. (laughs) Yes. I don't, I do think that this will end. I do genuinely think this will end because it's too mad. What I'm afraid of is a huge backlash. So if we let this go to really extremes, then what we end up with is people who don't just think in a moderate way, look, we're a sex species, we're mammals, there are two sexes. Often that doesn't matter. Sometimes it does. Everyone can do what they like in terms of gender stereotypes, but I'm not going to pretend that men can have babies. We end up with the sort of, you know, men are men and women are women and men are the ones who provide and, you know, women back into the kitchen, we'll end up and we definitely will end up fueling homophobia too, because there's already people who link the idea that two men can get married or that it's, you know, it's a natural phenomenon that a few people, a few percent of people are, uh, are gay. We already have people linking that idea to the idea that men and women are the same thing. And I mean, they're completely different things, but they get linked in the whole LGBTQ plus plus umbrella idea. And we end up really with a swing back to the sort of the bad idea of conservative. Mm. And then, you know, that's not good. So I sometimes say, you know, gender identity people should think I'm their best friend because I'm trying to stop them going so crazily mad that there'll be a horrific swing back and we'll be back to cross-dressing laws. And I'm the one who's trying to sort of limit the damage so that we can come back to more of a center position. I know gay people that don't want trans attached to their whole. Me too. Yeah. It's in, in many ways it infuriates them. They're like, we don't speak for you guys. Why are you attaching yourself onto to our thing? Like leave us alone. Don't claim. It's, it's called forced teaming. Yeah. So forced teaming is when you attach yourself to somebody else against their will and you use their goodwill and their heft. Like this, the LGBT acronym, we didn't say that 10 years ago, at least here in England. I think they started saying it a bit earlier in America. And, you know, and gay rights are very popular. Um, we didn't get gay marriage in anywhere, I think, until it was a, a, something that the solid majority of the population wanted. You know, most people think, let other people live the way they want. What harm is it doing? And so that goodwill 
is now used for let men get themselves into women's sports, whether the women want it or not. And by the way, they don't, which is like literally the opposite. But they're still saying, why do you care? What's it to you? I'm living my truth. You must be a homophobe. Or let's, you know, let's allow men to go into women's locker rooms, for example, and abuse women and say... Or just go in, you know, they don't have to abuse women. They make us uncomfortable just by coming in. Exactly right. Like, but the the fact is it it doesn't stop at the I'm uncomfortable. It sadly goes to the extreme because men are still men. And when they used and when they've got urges what are they going to do and, and so what i say to people is other people have rights yeah you know that that's that's my short catchphrase so when somebody says i think that they sh- you should allow gay marriage and you say well other people have rights it doesn't work that doesn't mean anything that sentence means nothing in response to we should allow people of the same sex to get married but if you say you know leah thomas yeah. you know can identify as a woman and you say well other people have rights it's clear female athletes have rights. And when he gets up and says, um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm offending Leah Thomas. No, he's a man. No, oh, I don't care. I, I'm going to call him he too. I don't care anyway. But when he gets up and says, my female athletes should be supporting me because I'm one of them. No, you're not. And I'm yeah. glad they're not supporting him. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> so it's as if gay marriage had been won by gay men arguing that they were really women and therefore should be entitled to do opposite sex marriage. It's literally the same as that. Backwards is that though. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Gay men aren't women. They're gay men. Yep. And so they argued it on their own, on its own merits. Well, now we've got men saying men can be women, therefore they should be allowed into women's spaces. I mean, it's just not the same and it's clearly very bad for women. And then they say, um, you know, why are you arguing? What's it to you? Well, I'm a woman. That's what it is to me. Your idea, this issue. <laughs> um, you wrote a brilliant book called Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. People can go and get it. Is it, Am I correct in saying wherever books are sold or do you have issues with it being sold in bookstores and that? I mean, it's very, very variable. There are individual staff in bookshops all over the place who hide it. Yeah. They misfile it or they leave it in the storeroom or they say that they haven't got it. And you know, it's hard to get it into libraries as well. That said, um, the best thing that you can do in those circumstances is ask for it and get them to order it in because, you know, commercial realities do overstep things. I think it's just been reissued under a new title and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember what it is. So I'm just going to look up what the new title of my own book is on Amazon. Um, so it's in paperback now and the it has been for a good while and the latest edition of it is called da, 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 let us get there i like the title. I, should, I really need to learn this off by heart um i know it's still available as uh, when ideology meets reality on amazon uk but anyway it's my only book and the title starts trans so you will be able to find it <laughs> if you just say helen joyce trans that's the only book you can get and I hope people do. I hope people read it. And it's not about, you know, making money for it. I mean, writing a book is a labor of love and it's oh, yeah. usually the worst paid work you ever do as a professional. And, you know, my book has sold well, but when you think of the work that went into it, it definitely was the worst paid work I've done as an adult. <laughs> I wrote it to be read. I wrote it to, you know, it's changed my life. I've given up a wonderful job. I've, um, you know, moved away from being the finance editor of The Economist to spending my days telling people that sex isn't a spectrum. 
So I hope people read it and talk about it and use it as um, a reinforcement of their understanding that they aren't mad. That's why I wrote it. People think they're the crazy ones. No, this idea is the crazy one. I saw it the other day in my local bookshop. I think it was in the society and culture section. And it was under, it was next to, funny enough, Douglas Murray's (laughs) book, War on the West. And I'm like, yeah, that fits. I know. I mean, uh, yeah, fine. I I mean, it's been an eye-opening experience for me realizing that people I used to respect, I no longer respect, and institutions I used to respect, I no longer respect. So I was probably very uh, naive five years ago. And I mean, I'm well into my 50s, so that's quite late to have had my eyes opened to how much ideological corruption and cowardice there is in all our institutions So I now listen to a much broader range of voices. And you know what? I'm still pro-vaccine. Nobody's going to make me an anti-vaxxer. I do not have populist opinions on migration. I still think Trump is terrible. But, you know, I have a a much greater respect for people who are heterodox in their opinions and also a much stronger understanding of the importance of free speech. Like I would have said I was pro-free speech before, but now it's like almost a religion for me. Free speech is so important because I'm watching what happens when people aren't able to say things. And that is we sterilize gay kids. Yeah. That's the severity of it, really. Yeah. And people got to be more aware of it. I mean, I'm I'm 26, so I'm glad that I'm getting aware and educated. You're exactly half my age, young man. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, you're not. You're less than half my age. That's, that's worse. Well, can, can I say you don't look in, you, like you're in your 50s, so you're doing something really well. I've got my lighting. <laughs> well, my lighting is going at the moment. So, so it probably looks like I'm older than I actually am. Uh, it doesn't. All, all the wrinkles are coming in at the moment. Um, but Helen, I did want to ask you two quick final questions, if that's okay with you. Um, I've sure. really, really enjoyed this conversation, but I wanted to bring more awareness on your book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. What was the most challenging part for you in writing the book? I mean, probably just the most challenging as a writer was learning all the history of it, because that's not why I wrote it. And it's not, I think, um, what people are reading it for, but you have to tell it because people do ask that question that you asked, which is how the hell did we get here? Um, I would say the most upsetting thing, so challenging in the sense of upsetting, I, I had understood before I wrote it what was happening to children. That was desperately upsetting, but I had, you know, got my head to some extent around it. But the thing that drives me completely mad is the issue of um, men being put into women's prisons. Mm. This is simply so grotesque that I cannot believe it's happening. I mean, and the UN, the UN Charter, like, you know, international law says that it's one of the worst human rights abuses is not putting women in their own prisons. Because when women have men in their prisons, women get raped. You have no, you have no will, no way to get away if you're in a prison. Like it's bad enough when it's a man in your, your gym's changing room or, you know, the workplace toilets. But in the last analysis, in a free society, you can choose not to go to that gym. You can, you can leave the workplace. These are not good things, of course, but you can. In a prison, you're controlled 24 hours a day. You can't move away from this person. And the system all over the West now is that men who identify as women have a decent chance of being moved into women's prisons. And the sheer wickedness of this 
is is some, something that still takes my breath away, even though I've known it's happening for five years. I thought when I started to look at this topic that there were a few things that would immediately make people understand that, you know, they just haven't been thinking about this and it's much worse than they thought. And the three things I thought were when you say they're sterilizing gay kids, when you say, but they're allowing male people to compete in female only sports. But above all, I thought that if I said to people, if you allow some male people to identify as women, you will sure as eggs is eggs end up with rapists in women's prisons. I thought they would say, oh, I see what you mean. And we can't have that, can we? I have to rethink my premises. And no. they don't. And so the moral bankruptcy of this movement still takes my breath away. And I find that, you know, it's hard to sleep when you think about that. You told me that you didn't really have much of a Christmas break or much of a New Year's because what were you doing? So Scotland introduced self-ID, a bill called the Gender Recognition Reform Bill before Christmas, and they did it in the week running up to Christmas quite deliberately as a, a, a way to make it very hard for people to protest because that's a very busy week for middle-aged women and we're the people who are leading this protest. Okay. Um, and they've done it in a, a way that's desperately complex, um, but they've done it by amending a part of a national bill, a UK-wide bill in ways that cause problems for the whole of the UK because it's very inconsistent and incoherent. So we spent Christmas, a lot of us who work on this issue, um, you know, trying behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, writing blog posts, talking to anyone we could, raising awareness of the fact that this was not only a wicked bill, but was also something that would cause problems for the devolution settlement. Because when Scotland does things, Scotland can only legislate for things that are what within its own competence, within the devolution settlement. It can't legislate what they call outwith competence, meaning things that are reserved to Westminster. And our argument, which was accepted by the, the UK government, of course, they were getting their own legal advice too, and their lawyers told them this too, was that the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill was outwith competence and therefore under the devolution settlement should be challenged by Westminster, which was which was decided, which was done earlier this month, right, in January. Um, so that was just basically working through that, you know, talking to people, constitutional lawyers, talking to um, equality lawyers, understanding how the Human Rights Act works, how the Equality Act works, how the Gender Recognition Reform Bill works, and just straight through, didn't take a break. And we weren't the only ones. No rest for the brave, right? I mean, it just, you, you let this go and it's 20 years to get rid of it again. So you have to take the chance when you, to stop things before they start. Like anywhere that has passed these laws is going to have to take 20 years to get rid of them. I'd really rather we didn't introduce them in the first place. What goes on behind the scenes, just so people are aware? What what do you do? I mean, what goes on behind the scenes? I mean, a lot of what I do is in front of the scenes. You know, we write policy papers and talk to think tanks and... Um, you know, give talks to local groups and give advice uh, on, to parents on how to approach people. But, you know, as with anybody who is working in a campaigning field, you're also talking to people who might be influential, uh, asking for meetings. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not lobbying. We're not a lobbying group. It's um, like it, the most the most effective tool is probably, you know, the policy paper. The policy paper that gets out there through some mechanism. Actually, our own website now is quite good. And then that becomes part of what the decision makers read and you become a more respected and better known voice. And the advice that you give when it chimes with the advice the government is getting itself, they start to think, oh, you know, those people know what they're talking about. So, yeah, it's basically that. It's putting the making the arguments as clearly as possible in as many venues and forums as possible 
and seeking to influence decision makers that way. Before we end, is there anything else that you want to make mention of for people? Anything that I might have missed in our conversation? I, today I think it was you were, you were very, you were very, um, uh, you, you know, we went, we went right across the waterfront, really. Um, I think I would just say to people, you're right to be scared about this, but don't be too scared. Like, don't say something that just lands as a bomb and gets you into trouble that you didn't even mean. But also, you know, these people are not all powerful. Mm. And there are things that you can do. You can definitely talk to your child's school if your child isn't in trouble on this issue. You can definitely write a letter to your representative. You can definitely feel out the people around you because most people agree that this stuff is nonsense. Mm. So if you're cautious, get yourself friends who agree with you and start to think what you can do at a grassroots level if that's the only place you can work. If you happen to be in a position of more influence, start to think about what you can do. Workplace groups are good. And um, we need more of those because we've got all these LGBT groups and workplaces that are pushing this stuff out. And, you know, middle-aged bosses think that the young people want this stuff. So set up a sex-based rights group. And then when when the LGBT group says put pronouns in your email signature and let's let everybody use whichever toilets they like. Another group can say, hang on, what about free speech? What about religious rights? What about women's rights? What about safety? And you can start to influence things that way, but strength in numbers and safety in numbers. I've heard you talk about uh, the DIF, is it? Diversity, inclusion thing? DEI, diversity, equity yeah. and inclusion. Yeah, that that happens in companies these days too, which is just another downfall altogether. But um, anyway, I think... Yeah, don't got, let them think that everyone agrees because they think everyone agrees if we're silent. Yeah. You don't have to go along with them. You can you can stand out. Be the black sheep. It's okay to be the black sheep. I'm very much that way. But carefully, with a bunch of other black sheep. I don't want anyone losing their job because of what I say. No, no. Find <laughs> other other people to, to support you and, and do it that way. But I am enormously grateful for your time, your work, your energy for not giving up uh, on this issue and to champion it among many, many others, I'm sure. And I'm grateful to be just a part of, of spreading this message even more. So thank you so much, Alan, for your time. Well, thank you. Giving it to me, your wisdom, your advice, and just your story and for joining me on the Storybox podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.